You're listening to Real Fiction. I'm Lori Messing-McGarry. A new novel by best-selling author Chanel Clayton presents an account of Cuba and U.S. newspapers during America's Gilded Age. Real Fiction is a place to discuss the real and imaginary forces that fuel stories and reportage. I talk with authors, journalists, scientists, historians, and storytellers about their work and the media content we're consuming. Real Fiction broadcasts on WERA 96.7 FM in Arlington, Virginia, and your favorite podcast platforms. All episodes are archived on realfictionradio.com. I'll be back in a moment with author Chanel Clayton. My guest today is best-selling author Chanel Clayton, Revolutionary Cuba and the World of New York Newspapers During the Late 19th Century Gilded Age come to life in Clayton's latest novel, The Most Beautiful Girl in Cuba. In this sweeping historical drama, readers get an account of American foreign policy during an era of journalism known as journalism of action. Sometimes it was called jailbreaking journalism. Chanel Clayton's book introduces readers to real-life events surrounding a prominent newspaper's role in releasing a woman named Evangelina Cisneros from a Cuban prison, which had the effect of galvanizing support for the U.S. intervention against Spain's control of Cuba. Joining me from Florida to discuss her new book is Chanel Clayton. Chanel, welcome to Real Fiction. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Well, The Most Beautiful Girl in Cuba, as I mentioned, we get an account of the American newspaper industry, all of its hostilities and glamour during the Gilded Age, and it brings into focus the newspaper's influence on foreign policy, uh, specifically the plight of an imprisoned young Cuban woman named Evangelina Cisneros. And your body of work, your novels have been largely set in Cuba, and there is an obvious command of the island and the culture. So how did you learn about Evangelina Cisneros, and why did you want to tell this story? Well, for me, really writing um, about Cuba and and these different time periods has really been a personal um, exercise. My family came to the United States in 1967 um, as exiles after the Cuban Revolution, And I really grew up on their memories of Cuba and their love for their homeland. And so it's something that is really important to me to be able to explore that identity and um, kind of some of the geopolitical events that that have shaped Cuba's history in, in my work. With Evangelina, I was actually down in the Florida Keys, and it was back in 2018. And I was researching my previous release, The Last Train to Key West, and while I was down there just sort of for fun, I went to the San Carlos Institute, which is a Cuban cultural heritage center. And I also visited the USS Maine Memorial. And, you know, for growing up in a Cuban American household and, and having so much of my life kind of be influenced by the revolution and, and my family's reaction to it, I didn't have as much knowledge or kind of familiarity with more distant Cuban history. Uh, these are events that my great grandparents would have lived through. 
but weren't something I really knew uh, too much about. So it really kind of sparked that curiosity in me. And then as I was just sort of researching the book and trying to come up with the characters who would populate this world that I wanted to create and the story that I wanted to tell, I just came across the mention of her name in um, just one of the sources I was reading. And I sort of jotted it down because I had never heard of her before. And I thought that was kind of interesting. And then as I went back and started digging a little more and reading more about her, I just became utterly fascinated with her life. Um, She is one of those rare instances, I think, where um, it's a life that adapts really well to fiction. Um, There was a newspaper owned by William Randolph Hearst, the New York Journal. And on October 10th, 1897, and again, this book takes takes place in the late 19th century during the Gilded Age, there was this headline and it said, an American newspaper accomplishes at a single stroke what the red tape of diplomacy failed utterly to bring about in many months. So what I was introduced to, because I have so very little knowledge of this piece of history, was that the United States took a great deal of interest in Cuba under Spain's rule. And your novel, again, the title is The Most Beautiful Girl in Cuba, your novel explores the tension between a few things, suppression, money and investments, geography. Um, But in your words, why was Cuba so important to the United States? And how did those interests play out in your novel? You know, I think it's a lot of the same kind of interests we see today and that we saw in the 50s and and going back throughout Cuban history. Um, The trade relationship, you know, at the time, that all of the this is going on, Spain is sort of on its like last legs in terms of being an imperial power. And so they're kind of grappling with their position in the world. They have this position in Cuba, they've colonized Cuba, but Cuba's trade relationships actually were quite a bit greater with the United States than they were with um, Spain. You know, the proximity between Cuba and the United States certainly played an important role. You had a lot of Cuban exiles who were living in the U.S., This was um, the third attempt for independence in Cuba. And so a lot of people in the previous ones had had fled to the United States. Mm. So you had this large Cuban community in the U.S., particularly in New York, um, that was kind of moving political political levers and had this very close relationship with the press. They were really good about sort of courting that relationship and giving information to the American press. So you had just a lot of close ties on a lot of different levels. And there were definitely schools of thought, you know, differing schools of thought of whether or not U.S. involvement in the conflict between between Cuba and Spain would be a good thing. You know, you see that play out a bit in the book with some of the different characters. Um, Some people wanted the U.S. to get involved, to kind of tip Cuba's hand and give them help because obviously Spain had just much more resources, um, even though they were having a hard time with the conflict and and the Cuban revolutionaries were um, sort of gaining ground but they were just fighting such a um, such an enlarged force that it was difficult. And then there were other people that were very suspicious of the U.S. getting involved and were concerned that if the U.S. did get involved, their interest in Cuba was so um, much tied to economics that it wasn't something they would do out of goodwill, but rather because they wanted to have an ongoing relationship with the island economically. Mm. And you mentioned that the um, Cuban population was largely centered in New York at that time. That clearly comes through in the novel and um, beautifully with the uh, storyline of how the the newspapers wanted to shape Cuban policy, U.S. policy toward Cuba. And in the fictional character of Grace Harrington, 
uh, we get insight into that sort of cutthroat newspaper battle between Joseph Pulitzer and William Randolph Hearst. And I just love the character of Grace because she actually seeks a job with Joseph Pulitzer's newspaper, but signs on as uh, what you call a stunt reporter with with uh, William Randolph Hearst's newspaper, The New York Journal. And the opening line of the novel reads, I think you'll find, Mr. Pulitzer, that as a woman, I'm able to infiltrate part of society your other reporters can't access. So, Chanel, what did you learn about women reporting the news during this time? It was a really interesting time to, to study women in journalism, you know, I, with that line of, of her kind of um, coming into to parts of society that, that a man wouldn't be able to. You know, one of the things I, I enjoyed doing was getting to put her in one of the women's groups that was um, supporting Cuban independence in the United States. She goes to one of their meetings. And you had these groups kind of all over the country. Um, there was a big Cuban presence in, in Florida and the Keys and Tampa. And there were women who were fundraising and, and sending arms to Cuba um, or sending aid to Cuba. And so getting to, to have a character who could go into that world um, really helped me show kind of the other side of the war that, that maybe um, you wouldn't see as much on the front page of the paper. Grace was really modeled after Nellie Bly. Um, Nellie Bly was a very influential uh, journalist in New York City. She was kind of a stunt girl journalist, but had really received um, uh, quite a bit more, I think, respect and kind of attention at that time because of the story she had reported on. So she wasn't quite in the stunt girl group, but she did um, some of the same kind of things where basically it was just kind of topping each other to try to do something outlandish to yeah. grab a headline. Um, they often used pen names and it was kind of um, undercover exposés. So the most famous one with Nellie Bly is that she went into Blackwell's asylum um, and kind of exposed the, the plight of women there and how they were being treated um, but it was things like that that were really women kind of finding a, a space for themselves in the news and in this world that was already so competitive, trying to, to kind of have that story that would break them out and, and to give them the respect as, as a journalist. Yeah, it's really compelling to read about that because it felt eerily relevant to today. Um, our All of our pressure to cut through content noise and find that, as you write in the book, that one scoop that could make or break a career. And Grace was so torn between wanting to take the opportunity that Hearst had given her in her early days of employment. But what she really wanted to do was report on issues that matter. And I, I have to say, I as I was reading this novel, I was thinking to myself, wow, if I had lived in New York City in 1897, would I have reached for the world or the journal newspaper, because that competition was really like, it was kind of like a spy network. Each each of the newsrooms were poaching reporters. Is there anything that really surprised you when you were researching this rivalry between Hearst and Pulitzer? I think really just um, kind of how larger than life and over the top their personalities were and, and how right. this conflict or rivalry between them just grew to, to such epic proportions. And then the kind of ramifications that it had on, you know, political history and, and the, the geopolitical situation. You know, it was interesting because you would just read things like, uh, you know, Pulitzer, Hearst would steal Pulitzer's staff. And then the next day, Pulitzer yeah. would steal them back for more money. And then the next day, Hearst would steal them back for, you know, even more money than that. I mean, it was just 
super over the top in terms of the way that, that they were going about things. You know, you had spies in the newsrooms, and that was definitely a big thing. Um, there were reports that Hearst would just regurgitate Pulitzer stories. Um, Pulitzer blocked Hearst from having access to a wire service. I mean, it was just constantly back and forth. And then toward the end of the Spanish-American War, I mean, they both were in pretty dire financial situations because they spent so much money on the war um, that there were kind of some speculations that if the war had continued longer than it did, they might have just bankrupted themselves um, in terms of their businesses because they were spending such a ridiculous amount of money, Hmm. you know, compared to what they were bringing in. But Hearst kind of famously said he preferred power to profit And he was really about um, courting influence. And for him, that was circulation. You know, he wanted his paper to be the paper that everyone was reading. And that was kind of the standard that everyone had set for New York City journalism. And up until that point, Pulitzer had sort of been in that position. But Hearst really came in and was just determined to usurp him. Yes, uh, the divided loyalties in the newsrooms are gripping and compelling and really fun to read about. But what you also get at here is William Randolph Hearst had an editorial policy that was really an activist mindset. And and we, we talked earlier about how this was um, sometimes called journalism of action. And his newspaper, the New York Journal, played Played, well, played a strong role in galvanizing support for the American intervention against Spain. In fact, I think it was Spain who uh, ran, uh, the, the country ran um, some kind of statement that said the newspapers have more power than President McKinley in Washington. And that, you know, there were a lot of things at play that moved the United States to um, to action against Spain. But what what sort of things were William Randolph Hearst tasking his reporters with doing in Cuba? Can you give us a little insight into what that journalism of action meant for him and that newspaper? Sure. So he um, definitely, I mean, absolutely what he said, he really wanted, um, I think from almost really the beginning of the third fight for independence, which broke out in 1895, he really wanted um, to see the U.S. enter into the conflict pretty early on compared to, I think, where kind of the national opinion was. And so he very much sort of directed his resources that way and wanted, um, you know, compelling images of the war. Frederick Remington was down there um, and he would send images back. Um, He just basically gave his reporters kind of carte blanche to go down there financially and in terms of support. Um, there's that famous quote that is actually kind of misattributed to him of um, you furnish the pictures, I'll furnish the war. And, and that oh, is wow. actually something that's not, even though we kind of know that saying, it, it is kind of been debunked that he actually said that. But it does kind of go to the heart of the fact that he really wanted his correspondence down there, um, you know, bring back kind of the most terrific images and things that would kind of galvanize um, the American people to to harness their support behind um, the Cuban movement and to getting involved um, in the conflict. And sometimes he got stories wrong. I mean, that's something I talk about in the book, but sometimes they would misreport on something um, in kind of that flurry to, to bring up public support. And, you know, he was an interesting figure because I think, you know, it's undeniable that he was absolutely motivated by a desire for profit um, and also a, a desire for influence. But I think he also did kind of believe um, a lot of the narrative that that he had kind of spun. And so he was just very determined that his paper was going to kind of chart this course. And and this is what we were going to see 
when the Spanish-American War broke out. I mean, he went down there himself on a yacht. He had showgirls with him. And he basically ran a full-up paper um, from this yacht, and they would make kind of uh, supply runs. But really, he um, brought the Spanish-American War to people, I think, in a way that the other papers weren't doing. That's so. That was true. That aspect about the yacht, um, yes, kind of yes. in the harbor. <laughs> no, I couldn't have made that up. I really, um, I was. I think I was reading an autobiography or a biography about him, and I came across that. Um, and he had two, the Wilson sisters. There were two kind of um, showgirls. There were Floridora girls, is what they called them. And I, he was rumored to be, you know, kind of dating both of them at one time, and then I think he preferred one of the sisters over the other, and ended up with her. Yes, all of that was uh, definitely from the historical record. You know, the process um, for Hearst and his reporters sourcing information, and just the process of of Cubans wanting to know what what was happening, comes through in the book. There's a uh, another character, her name is Marina Perez. She's a revolutionary figure in Cuba, and I think what what we don't think about, what I haven't thought about, is the role of women in that Cuban conflict. And she was passing critical information in laundry, literally in clean, clean laundered sheets while working as a laundress in Havana. What did you learn about women's role in the Cuba's revol- in Cuba's revolution against Spain? Yeah, you know, this is kind of a transformative part in history for for a lot of different people in Cuba for women. It's kind of the we're seeing Cuban uh, women's suffrage coming out in the previous conflicts where women got more and more involved, and then in this one. And so, if I think for a lot of women, they were trying to find a place for themselves in society, both on a personal level and then also, um, you know, politically in society at large. And you know, they were passionate about Cuban independence, and so they wanted to be involved in this effort as well. And they were involved in a lot of different ways. I mean, you had women serving as nurses. They were going around with the revolutionaries. You had women who were accompanying the revolutionaries um, in the, the camps that they were fighting in. Um, you had women who were spying and who were working as couriers. And that's where I came up with the idea to give Marina this, um, this opportunity to kind of be involved in the war effort. You know, in Cuba, for all that we've talked about, the excess of, of the Gilded Age and the journalism, um, in New York, you know, in Cuba, this was a really heartbreaking time. Um, Cuban citizens were sent from the countryside by the Spanish um, into these reconcentration camps. And largely it was women and children um, who were in these camps. A lot of the men left and went into the countryside to flee, uh, to fight. And so, you know, you had women really bearing the brunt of this horrific war. You know, so many people perished from malnourishment, from disease. And it, it was really a time where you saw um, how much Cuba sacrificed, you know, in this fight for independence. And so I wanted to look at, at what women's lives were were like then, you know, and how they could contribute to the war effort. And then outside of Cuba, you know, as I mentioned earlier, in the large exile communities in Tampa and Key West and in New York, you saw these women's groups springing up, which Grace kind of interacts with them a little bit. Um, and they were doing everything that they could to to fight for Cuban independence, you know, in exile and in the United States. So I really think it's a story of um, women's love for their country and and serving in the ways that they could at that time. Yeah, a lot of sacrifice. And um, Chanel, where where were the reconcentration camps located in Cuba? Were they were they across the island, or were they centered in a certain certain part of Cuba? They were in cities. Um, cities. So basically, they would um, drive people from the countryside, and and the country was reconcentrated in different waves. 
um, depending on the region. So at different time periods, this kind of started to happen. But it was a way for the Spanish to control the population. They didn't want um, the Cuban population giving support to the revolutionaries through food or any kind of assistance or harboring anyone. So for them, they just seized everything and, and burned people's homes. They gave them eight days to reconcentrate to the nearest city. And it was, I mean, truly horrific. It, it destroyed the Cuban countryside. I mean, so many people perished and was just, um, you know, one of those really darker moments in Cuban history. And it was something that also in the United States, you know, raised a lot of concern for the conflict. Um, famously, Senator Proctor from Ohio came down and, and visited the camps. And he spoke on the Senate floor about, you know, how horrific the conditions were. Um, really trying to kind of rally support. So it, it was definitely something that I think also kind of shifted public opinion when they saw how horribly people were suffering in, in Cuba. One of those um, images, um, circling back to your marvelous character, real life character of Evangelina Cisneros, she was, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but she she became known as the most beautiful girl in Cuba. That was a that was a newspaper editorial headline. That was the moniker that uh, that William Randolph Hearst bestowed upon her. And that's why when I titled the book, I felt like it just so perf- perfectly encapsulated kind of the, um, the drama and the exaggeration of journalism in that era um, that he gave her that title. But that, that was William Randolph Hearst. He was a showman and he wanted to rally public opinion behind her. So he kind of lifted her up to this, you know, paragon status that, of course, no one could could actually um, live up to in, in that attempt to to kind of rally public opinion behind her. Yeah, he, he did it very effectively. She was quite the cause celebra of the day, um, certainly one of the galvanizing moments in this conflict. Um, as I think about her, and again, she, she was a real life person, um, how... How do you put her life into context? And can you tell us something about what became of Angelina after the conflict settled down? You know, I think um, to put her life in context, the thing that really struck me was I felt like her story in a lot of ways was Cuba's story. Um, And I won't get into too many spoilers. I mean, depending on how much you know about Cuban history, you might already kind of see where this is going. Um, But it was, you know, it was a little heartbreaking to kind of see... um, you know, how things ended up for Cuba, you know, in some ways, obviously, um, you know, things are a little better, but obviously there were also some challenges with the way the whole conflict played out. And, um, you know, it was kind of the same thing with her. She had an an interesting, you know, brush with infamy. And really, I don't think it was something she necessarily, you know, sought for herself. Um, But she was in kind of such dire straits that she, did the best she could with the situation that that she was put in. Mm-hmm. And I think she really realized um, how much her her ability to survive depended on, you know, kind of playing into this role that they had created for her because she was in such a precarious position. She was a very smart woman. She was very passionate about Cuban independence. I mean, that's kind of from the beginning what we know about her. She was going to go with her father to fight with the revolutionaries before he was um, caught and, and sent in exile. So from the beginning, you know, her love of Cuba just really shines through. And that's what I wanted to, to bring out in the book. Um, she sort of famously says she wants to end her story with the cry of uh, Viva Cuba Libre, which is um, her kind of desire to, to let people know that that's at the heart of what was important to her. And so I tried to kind of bring that about in the book and, and to honor her that way. 
you know, after sort of that year that she was very famous, she was touring the United States and speaking to groups and there were parades and, and huge rallies in her honor. But after that, she sort of fades from public view. Um, she eventually did go back to Cuba. You know, she had children. Um, her husband passed away. She had more children. Um, and we don't really know as much about her life after that. Sort of at the end of her life, she was reportedly interviewed and sort of expressed disbelief that, um, you know, people had cared that much about her story. You know, what I found remarkable about um, her story and what came through in the novel is that she did allow a version of herself to exist in the newspapers and to great effect for Cuba, which in a real way was a, a revolutionary act. She's just a, a compelling woman um, on a lot of levels. Um, remarkable that she lived lived kind of a quiet life after all of that yes. action. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you about one um, piece of her story. She spent some amount of time in the United States after her release from Cuban prison. Now, is it true that she was a guest of a prominent general in Virginia during her stay yes. in the U.S.? That's true. Yes, she was. Um, so uh, General Fatou Lee was the consul general in Cuba. He was the highest ranking American officer in Cuba. And when her case started to kind of reach um, American ears in Cuba, he investigated himself. Um, his wife and daughter kind of struck up a friendship with her when she was in prison before they kind of cut her off. And then when she came back to the United States, when she came to the United States, and they left Cuba as kind of the war was starting. You know, there were rumblings after the USS Maine that war was going to break out. They came back to Virginia um, and she did she did meet with them. And her husband, who she ends up marrying, um, did work with him. All of that was in the historical record. So mm. they worked together. And that's kind of, I think, how they became reacquainted, to, as best we know, within the historical record. And, and how that relationship kind of came to be again. Uh, amazing what you have managed to unearth. Um, and I, I feel like Evangelina might have been a bit lost to history had you not um, put this story together. And I'll just remind listeners that my guest today is bestselling author Chanel Clayton. Her latest novel is titled The Most Beautiful Girl in Cuba. It is a sweeping historical drama. We get into the newspaper world of New York, um, the challenges in Cuba in the late 19th century. Chanel, I can't thank you enough for joining Real Fiction today. It was um, wonderful talking with you about this new novel. Well, thank you so much for having me. I had a wonderful time. You've been listening to Real Fiction. I'm Lori Messing McGarry. This program broadcasts Wednesdays on WERA 96.7 FM Radio Arlington and your podcast platform of choice. All episodes and guest profiles are archived on realfictionradio.com. Thanks for listening.